episode of the William Branham Historical Research Podcast. I'm your host, John Collins, the author and founder of William Branham Historical Research at william-branham.org. And with me, I have my co-host, researcher, minister, and friend, Charles Paisley, the founder of ChristianGospelChurch.org. Together, we're examining the history and the intersections in history between William Branham and other key figures that either influenced or were influenced by the post-World War II healing revivals. Charles, this has been an absolute whirlwind of a week. Um, I'm so excited for this episode. It's probably the most excited I've been for any of the episodes. And um, after the few that we've had in the past, I thought that would never happen. But as you know, I've been working on my next book, which is... um, You know, my first book, Preacher Behind the White Hoods, a critical examination of William Branham and his message, it does a really good job of answering the how. How did William Branham do this? How did he achieve this? How did my grandfather get duped into this thing? And this book answers the how, but it left all the readers, and I was told this several times, and myself, it left this huge hole as to the why. So I've been following up with a second book, which it kind of goes in parallel with this book, but it talks about the deeper, darker culture that went around the message and how William Branham connected to some of these people and answers the why. And on Monday, I stumbled onto The Missing Link, and you and I started digging into this guy, and oh my gosh, it answers every question. So we decided collaboratively that we would um, throw a curveball to all the listeners and um, take a step backwards in the timeline because this really ties everything together. Um, We had intended to do some of that anyway. We're going to go back and talk about the 1933 prophecies. And there's so many trails that kind of come together to the epicenter of the explosion of when William Branham transitioned from a revivalist to a cult of personality. And so instead of going back to, you know, a certain period of time, we're going way back and we're going to start introducing the why into our podcast. I'm excited to talk about this character today. And it does fit pretty well, I think, with the last three episodes we've done, too, because, you know, it it helps to explain how William Branham ultimately reconnected uh, with a whole lot of figures as you come into the early 1950s that he seemed to be not terribly connected to in the 1940s. So uh, it, I'm looking forward to getting into it. And, you know, I know we had been planning to move on, but I, I do think this will help to show a little more about the relationship between Pentecostalism, William Branham, and the emerging Christian identity theology uh, during the 40s and 50s. And so Hopefully in this episode we can connect some more dots for our, our listeners to, to see a pattern of and maybe just realize what's going on around William Branham um, through his ministry. And, you know, in the message, you know, you can bury your head in the sand, but, you know, make no mistake, William Branham was connected to the leading white supremacists of his day. He was. Yes. And, and today we want to look at a figure named uh, Gerald Burton Winrod. And through him I think we can connect a whole lot of dots even beyond but we what we've explained in the last episodes and and uh 
let me say this. If you haven't listened to the past episodes, this might not be the best one to start on. <laughs> but uh, but we're definitely going to build on a lot of stuff that's been said before. So, so John, uh, maybe before we get into talking about um, all of Winrod's relationships and his connections to Pentecostalism and William Branham's ideology, maybe you can tell us who Gerald Winrod or Gerald Burton Winrod is and what he's famous for. For the listeners who were in the message, you know, we've got a vast audience, some people researching, some people who were actually in this cult. Um, I think this will make a lot of sense to the people in the message. And for the researchers, it's just fascinating history. Um, I was at the point in the new book where I've, I've reached the point in writing where I'm up to where William Branham is getting his you know, early started in the ministry and why that church was established in Jeffersonville. We actually, working together with you, Charles, we've actually answered the why to a lot of these things. <clears throat> but there's one quote that I had <laughs> had put on the shelf as just this random fact that I didn't know what to do with, and it ties very closely to a second one. And I was, as I was writing the book, I went back to this quote, and um he mentions um, Mussolini, and for the listeners who were in the message, they're familiar with the name Mussolini because not just for his historical nature, William Branham claimed in the 50s that he had a series of prophecies in 1933 in which he prophesied about Mussolini taking a great fall if he went down towards Ethiopia, which is really problematic because... Ethiopia didn't exist. It was a different country by, it was the same country by a different name. And um, I'll, I'll, re I'll just read the quote. He says, <clears throat> we're living in the end time. How many of you has heard years ago down here when they was going to have me arrested for preaching on the mark of the beast? I said that when Mussolini, when he first came into power some 20 odd years ago, I said, if Mussolini ever goes towards Ethiopia, mark this down, there'll never be peace until Jesus Christ comes. And this opened up a big can of worms, Charles, because I started researching what was happening. You know, you can't be arrested for preaching something like this. We have you know, freedom of religion in the United States, there's freedom of speech, there's, there are, are so many things that even William Branham in his connivory, in his unethical practice of telling mistruths, this would have never even stuck with his listeners. So it's always bothered me. <clears throat> so I started trying to research, well, you know, was there ever a time in which he actually could have been arrested for this? Turns out there was, and this Gerald Winrod character was at the epicenter of this uh, this very problematic time in American history. I stumbled onto the Great Sedition Trial of 1944, and remember, according to our timeline that we've been establishing, 1944 is immediately before William Branham explodes into his faith healing revival, as mentioned in the, his pamphlet, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. And Winrod was <laughs> nicknamed the Jayhawk Nazi, the Kansas Hitler, because he was blending this weird version of 
pro-Nazi anti-Semitism with um, the British Israelism doctrines. <clears throat> and he became quite famous, and he was very, very well connected, which we'll get into further in this episode. <clears throat> but he was literally at the epicenter of this trial because it was the biggest sedition trial in World War II. Um, Winrod was undermining the morale of the United States troops during the war, <clears throat> and it literally led to the biggest sedition trial of the war. Yeah, you know, it, it's really interesting looking at him. You know, he is a figure. There's this book we, we have mentioned through the last three episodes, Religion and the Racist Right by Michael Barcoon. And he is in this book as well. You know, he's a figure that, that's talked about in here. And he's actually a really well-studied figure, John, um, actually. I, I was kind of surprised as I started to dig in. There's a number of books on him. Um, and he's interesting in multiple ways. And <clears throat> you're right, John. He, he's, he's, he is a British Israelite, uh, but he is preaching the emerging Christian identity theology. And he's doing that during... Uh, World War II, um, and in, in the years leading up to it, and of course, <laughs> Christian identity is somewhat pro-Nazi. Honestly, back then it was mo you know it was moderately pro-Nazi, but by the time you get into modern days, I mean they they fly the swastika, right? Yeah. Uh, but back then it was more moderate, but it was still enough to get him um, caught up in the dragnet when the government was out hunting up uh, Nazi traitors during World War II. And the other people that he got arrested with were all part of the American Bund, B-U-N-D, Bund. And the American Bund was a, a group in the United States that had been set up by the German government, actually, before World War II. Uh, they were ran by, out of the German embassy in the United States, and they were basically friends of the Nazi Party of Germany. And they command and control, a lot of them were German immigrants, um, and they would basically do Hitler's bidding in the United States. And they were all about trying to promote relations between the United States, Germany, promote Nazi ideology in the United States. Anyways, he was rounded up with all of them. And one of the things they had done, um, they had, and, and all this happened in L.A. too, by the way. They're all arrested in L.A. Um, it's all happened in L.A., the trials in L.A. Um, they had held a mock trial of, of President Roosevelt and then um, condemned him and then they did a mock execution of Roosevelt. So this is this is that's specifically the activities, you know. So in addition to that ideology, you know, um, they've also did they do not like Roosevelt, right? And they've 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 done these really um, inflammatory things during the middle of World War II. So yeah, they've they've been rounded up. They're in jail. There's actually video footage of these people, you know, getting unloaded off of the. Uh, off the truck when they're being taken into uh, the courthouse for further trial, and you know it's an interesting thing to look at. Um, so they're they're very high profile and well known in the United States for sure. Back when this happened, and what's really interesting, Charles, is that like you say, British Israelism was somewhat pro-Nazi, but Winrod took this to whole new levels. Um, you know, it it was a racist theology. Make no mistake, and it was, you know somewhat rooted in white supremacy, but in general, I don't know that I can say that all people who were British Israelite doctrine accepting people were racist. But then along comes Winrod, and he takes this to a whole new level. Winrod actually started bringing in end-of-days prophecy 
tying it to the Jews. And he had this very, very popular radio program. And I started studying that because that just fascinated me. How in the world did somebody who's pro-Nazi, who's actually leading to the Great Sedition Trial, get to be that famous on the radio? And come to find out, there are documents explaining this, but he was using overloaded language to, in his radio broadcast, talk negatively about the Jews. And then over time, that shifts to include the blacks. So he's bringing in white supremacy in the United States through this. But he's using code words in his speeches. For instance, whenever he talks about the communists, he's actually talking about the Jews. And when he talks about the mongrel race, he's actually talking about the blacks. And there's a few different keywords that are used. I started going back through the sermons of William Branham and, oh my gosh, there are so many instances where William Branham will say that the communists are going to invade the United States and there will be the end of days. And then he'll say in other areas of his speeches that it's not communism, it's Rome, and they'll invade the United States. And those two just, you know, they can't go together. But under Winrod's theology and using this overloaded language, all of this actually fits. It all works because Winrod was stating that Mussolini was rising to become the Antichrist and that the communists were going to partner with Rome and they would invade the United States. And this would bring in the end of days and usher in the new millennium. This is exactly what William Branham taught throughout his entire ministry. Yeah, you know, specifically when you when you look at that thing that William Branham said about the three isms, which ended up being part one of his seven prophecies, which we'll get to in another episode. But the, those three isms, that is a that is from Gerald Winrod, you know, without exactly. a shadow of a doubt. You know, after we've overlooked overlooked over what he was preaching in the twenties and thirties. Uh, the three ism stuff is William Branham repeating some things he heard from Gerald Winrod, you know, either directly or indirectly, and and it's really interesting that he William Branham mentioned several times on tape that he was nearly arrested, um, and he even tells the places he was preaching. I think is a Redwood Hall or Red Hall, something like that, where he was preaching when he was nearly arrested for preaching these things, and and of course we know that Gerald Winrod and over 30 people, 35 people, I think, ended up arrested uh, in that dragnet uh, during World War II. So, you know, it, it's interesting. I, I just wonder, you know, it leaves you wondering, what, why, why, did, why did William Branham think he was going to get arrested? You know, obviously, from his stories, it sounds like the police came in and threatened him or something over, over him preaching things related to Hitler and Mussolini during World War II. So, that's, that's interesting. And... So, so that's who that's who um, Winrod is. So maybe why don't we kind of work through his connections and everybody that he was working with, John? And I think this will begin to connect dots for for a lot of people. And like I said again, he, he's there's lots of good material, lots of good books. Religion and the Racist Right um, that has some stuff on him. If you want to start there, but one thing about him, John, is like Charles Parham, he is from Kansas. Yes, and. As you read through his stuff, it, it seems that he became connected to Pentecostalism from very early on in the movement. And besides that, most of the books I have looked at on him point to him as being most likely a high-ranking clan figure, too. 
And so through that, we also know he was connected to Roy Davis, right, John? Absolutely. Um, and and not just Roy Davis, William Upshaw from the 1920s at least, right? And during those same years in the 1920s, uh, Gerald Winrod was working with Amy Semple McPherson too. Um, he was at her church preaching. We have pictures of him preaching at her church. And Amy Semple McPherson would publish his material in her church newsletters and and through tracks out from from Angelus Temple. So you know he was he was connected to that as well. And there's just a whole lot of disturbing things that Angelus Temple was connected to back then. Honestly, John and and we know Amy Semple McPherson was working with the KKK in the 1920s as well. I mean, there's there's substantial evidence on that newspaper articles as well. So those are those are the first sample of his connections. <laughs> there's one point that I want to mention before we get too much further. William Branham said some very strange things about Franklin Roosevelt and. Uh, at one point, there's even a quote, and I can't remember the exact verbiage, but he says that R- Roosevelt is the one who's going to start World, World War II. And this later changes to, you know, obviously Hitler is the cause of World War II and um, so on and so forth. But there's this big debate. It turned into a conspiracy within the message because people realize Roosevelt did not start World War II. Roosevelt joined, the United States joined into the war much later in the in the history and timeline of World War II. So in the message, there's this conspiracy that Roosevelt was this bad guy who's orchestrating the whole thing because you can't have the prophet making a false claim, right? <clears throat> well, what's interesting is Roosevelt was Winrod's prime enemy number one. He, he, he not only undermined the United States military and their morale during the war and tried to, you know, convert them to pro-Nazi ideologies, he was specifically targeting Roosevelt, and he had spread the notion in the United States that Roosevelt was being controlled and manipulated by the communists, which he, at that point in time, was referring to the Jews, and he was basically saying that there were key figures within Washington that were controlled and manipulated by the Jews. And so when William Branham makes this statement, which, again, it's a statement that is said one way and then said the polar opposite way, the two actually go together when you enter Winrod into this picture because he is saying exactly what Winrod was saying during this time period. Yeah, and there was a uh, a man named, actually from Louisville here, his name, last name was Brandeis, who was a Jew, um, who was very influential with President Roosevelt. Uh, and so uh, a lot of the accusations that Roosevelt was um, under the influence of Jews had to do with his relationship with Brandeis. So, right. And and again, that was just crazy conspiracy theory stuff back then, right? I mean, conspiracy theories have been around a long time, and here's a man, you know, making a ministry out of conspiracy theories, <laughs> like quite a few other preachers we know in our lives now, John. It, it's something else. But that's yeah. who Winrod was. He was into conspiracies of his day. Yeah. Uh, and inserting that into British Israelism and, and, you know, bringing what's happening in the news into his current prophecy preachings, right? Right. It's very common type messagey thing, you know, the, the basic concept of it. And so, yeah, and so there there's more to Winrod's connection. So we, we mentioned he's connected to Davis, to Upshaw, to Amy Semple McPherson. You know, he, he was in Pentecostalism from the early days. Um, 
Bert, Winrod is also the man who converted Wesley Swift to British Israelism. Um, and that's that's in the, the Michael Barcoon's book and, and all of them as well. He is actually the man who converted Wesley Swift, John. Um, and so Wesley Swift was originally from New Jersey. He heard Winrod, Winrod preaching, uh, decided to move out to L.A. and start attending the seminary connected to Angelus Temple and became ended up becoming a preacher at Angelus Temple. And that's how really the whole Christian identity movement kicked off. You know, the ideology preexisted Swift a little bit with, with Philip Monson and men like Winrod. Uh, but Swift is the man who ends up taking their ideas and, and turning it into what eventually becomes the Christian identity movement. Yeah. So again, Winrod's connected to Angelus Temple. He's connected to Roy Davis. He's connected to Upshaw, to Christian identity, to Wesley Swift, Amy Semple McPherson. Right. He is, he is connected to all of the stuff that, that's going on during those years. He is our missing link. In fact, I think it'd probably be good for the researchers who are listening to this podcast to just pause and let's talk puzzle pieces. We've got all these puzzle pieces out on the board that you and I have been examining <laughs> during the course of this podcast. And, you know, when you're building a puzzle, you put all the pieces that you can make fit into the picture. And then you got all these weird pieces on the side. Well, we have just identified, I don't know how many puzzle pieces that we just really couldn't make fit through Winrod because he was the missing link that brought those two together. So I'll, let's do this. I'll talk um, about what I discovered with my puzzle pieces. And then I know you found significantly more than I did. I, I think you stumbled onto some pretty big stuff as it relates to William Branham's ministry. But early in my examining Winrod, I discovered that Winrod was a director for the World's Fundamentalist Association. Yeah, the World Christian Fundamentalist Association. World yeah. Christian Fundamentalist Association. And for people who don't know what this is, there was this rising movement against Christian science had kind of taken root in the United States during this time. And um, <clears throat> there were the fundamentalists were rising up against the ideologies of Christian science. There's a period of time in which Christian science started to try to scientifically view the Bible instead of religiously and fundamentalist religion look at the passages in the Bible. Right. And when you when you say Christian science, you don't mean um, you don't mean Ellen White's no. group. You mean uh, actual science, <laughs> actual scientists. And, yeah. Yes. Uh -huh. Exactly. So that that really is for me. That's how I stumbled onto this, and then you took it to whole new levels. But um, so when Rod was a director in this, well, Roy E. Davis was also a director in this. I had another p puzzle piece for Davis where. Um, as he's touring with his underage girl, soon-to-be wife, um, it mentioned that he was working with the National, with the uh, Fundamentalist Association, and he was a director. <clears throat> he was also connected to several people that were also connected to Winrod, like John Roach Straten. He's Davis was very deeply connected to him. Um, Billy Sunday and a few others. So Davis was well-connected to Winrod. We know this beyond the shadow of a doubt. Winrod, I found, toured with Paul Rader, the one who wrote William Branham's Only Believe song. Paul Rader was also on that the board of the Fundamentalist Association, too, John. Right, right. With Davis and with Winrod. Right. 
So they're touring together on, you know, the Fundamentalist League, and there's actually this big collaboration of men who joined together. We've got a photograph, which I'll throw on the screen, where they're at the Cato Tabernacle. Um, Cato has numerous connections to William Branham. William Branham was very close friends with E. Howard Cato, and Cato is, he created the, the tabernacle that became Klan headquarters in Indiana. So a lot of connections yeah. there. And Paul Rader, like you mentioned, is so is very important. I mean, he he is the man who wrote "Only Believe," like you mentioned, um, and he was a big influence on William Branham. He was president of the Christian Missionary Alliance back then, yes. which was the group F. F. Bosworth was in at the same time. F. F. Bosworth, if you look through his magazines, uh, you'll find he was reprinting Winrod's materials in his magazine too in the 1920s, John. So you know, F. F. Bosworth is connected to Winrod too, right? So I'll let you keep going. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's so much here. It's like where do we where do we begin? <laughs> um, so they're at Cato Tabernacle, and if you've looked at my research, Cato is just sig- really significant. E. Howard Cato, there there are significant connections there. Well, also back in this area is Ralph Rader, a very close relative of Paul Rader, and Ralph Rader was also in this missionary alliance with Bosworth and with um, Winrod. And he he's... William Branham launched his church when he came to Jeffersonville. Exactly. So there are so many connections literally back to William Branham's early life before he would have even met Davis. This this allows us really through through finding out that they were all on this board together. This lets us connect Roy Davis directly to Paul Rader really yeah. for the first time. We'd already knew he was working with, you know, the other brother in Jeffersonville, um, but he wasn't, we didn't have a direct connection to Paul Rader up until this. So yeah, Davis yeah. was working directly with Paul Rader, the head of the Christian Missionary Alliance, and was on that board with him at the World Christian Fundamentalist Association with Winrod. So very interesting stuff. It's it's crazy interesting when you get into it. And <clears throat> Uh, another question for me that I've always tried to answer is how did William Branham get connected to Davis? And this answers that question because you've got E. Howard Cadle, who's literally the one <laughs> who's starting the Klan headquarters and being funded, you know, by the Klan, etc. You've got Winrod, who's connected to him, and you've got this extensive network of religious figures connected to this weird criminal underground in Jeffersonville. So when William Branham gets in trouble, he's whisked out into the re- religious community. I never knew how that could have happened until we entered Winrod into this picture. Yeah, it, it was kind of mysterious, and it still is somewhat. You know, if you if you went back and you listened to our episodes on, you know, the Ku Klux Klan in Indiana, and that episode where we walked through what happened with William Branham during you know, the 1920s, the early 1920s specifically, you know, you're left with questions about just how William Branham ended up going from, you know, working with Wathan and working on Wathan's farm to ending up with Roy Davis and the Ku Klux Klan. It's a, it's a very unusual transition to go from the whiskey to the Klan, right? Like, yeah. So that's a, it's almost like a U-turn in a sense. So yeah, it's it's really this this does certainly allow some of those dots to be connected in a plausible way as well. 
the other big one as and you sparked my memory with the whiskey Winrod was campaigning for William D. Upshaw whenever Upshaw ran for president under the Prohibition Party. Yeah, <clears throat> and, that was in um, 1932 when Upshaw 1930, ran for president. Exactly. And Upshaw's um, campaign was operated from the Cato Tabernacle. So there's just uh, so many connections back yeah. to William Branham Win- here. Winrod, according to the sources, was on Upshaw's campaign team doing stump speeches for him across the eastern United States. Yeah, so Winrod's Winrod is directly connected to every one of these people, and he also, you know, is a bridge to Amy Semple McPherson to Angelus Temple, and he really is arguably the conduit for the whole reason that Wesley Swift went to Angelus Temple to begin with. Yeah, uh, because you know he's the one who introduced him out there, and Amy Semple McPherson was working with him and had an f- environment friendly to their views uh, through the twenties, thirties, forties. And think of that. I mean, that, from the Angelus Temple, we have this other big explosion. Amy Simple McPherson is the one who funded the Sharon Orphanage, which literally exploded into the Latter Rain movement, of which promoted William Branham and lifted him into fame in the revivals. Branham's healing revival leadership would not have existed without Amy Simple McPherson. Then when William Branham's ministry was crumbling in the 50s, you've got Leroy Cop, who was a um, minister at Angelus Temple, and they they produced this video, 20th Century Prophet, to lift William Branham back up into fame. None of this would have even existed without Winrod. Yeah. You know, it, it's after... There's, there's certain things that start to make sense, too, in the timeline looking at this so you know there's things here that just connect together it really this just adds another layer of understanding to some of this stuff so um what's what's really interesting here john like you mentioned and i know we mentioned back when we did our initial episodes on latter rain the angelus temple is is the people the angelus temple and the four square churches um are the ones who funded the Sharon Orphanage and built it up in Saskatchewan where Latter Rain started. And so uh, you, you'll find that, you know, if you look at the newspaper articles, it's very clear there's a man named Herrick Holt who's like the du- district superintendent uh, from Foursquare. He's the one who did all the fundraising among their churches. Um, and the Foursquare churches is is the denomination that Amy Semple McPherson started with Angelus Temple being their headquarters. So they're the ones who started um, the Sharon Orphanage. And one thing I do just want to make, clear to our listeners is how maybe British Israelism, British Israelism finally died within Pentecostalism and then its successor ideologies, you know. So throughout the history of British Israelism, John, there's actually a dispute over Germany. Um, and this goes all the way back to John Wilson at the very beginning of the ideology. They they were disputing, is Germany part of the Ten Lost Tribes or not? Like This goes all the way back to the early days of the movement. And you got two camps in British Israelism all the way back to the start of the movement. One camp, Germany is part of the Lost Ten Tribes. Another camp, Germany is not part of the Lost Ten Tribes, right? So you've you've got these two camps within British Israelism. And the camp that makes Germany part of Israel is the camp that eventually produces the Christian identity theology, John. And as you come to the 1930s, it's the pro German groups who are primarily developing that Christian identity theology, and they are found almost exclusively within Pentecostalism. But at the same time, overall British Israelism is going into decline within Pentecostalism too, right? The Assemblies of God had started to reject Pentecostalism in the 1920s. 
After Paul Rader left the Christian Missionary Alliance, they started to reject it in the 1930s, same time F.F. Bosworth left their group. Um, the UPC churches, the ones who built the UPC churches, they also started to reject in the 1930s. Uh, and the Elam churches, they held out just a little longer, but they also rejected in the 1930s. And by the time you get to the 1940s, right, um, most of Pentecostalism has rejected British Israelism. And no doubt the sedition trials had a lot to do with that. And, but British Israelism held on the longest at Angelus Temple uh, and the Four Square Churches. That's where it held out the longest at. And it's really not until you reach the 1950s, you know, a few years after Amy Semple McPherson has died, that the Angelus Temple and the Four Square Churches finally start to reject British Israelism. But that's done after they've started the, you know, the Sharon Orphanage, right? And they're really the only Pentecostal group the ones associated around Angelus Temple, the Foursquare Churches, that are still British Israelite when you get to the other side of World War II. And so Sharon Orphanage was British Israelite. George Houghton was a well-known British Israelite. And when the latter reign kicks off, there is a strong British Israelite influence there from the very beginning. And as British Israelism dies, John, it produces two successor ideologies. We, we talked about this over our past few episodes. And those two ideologies, one of them is the very, very deeply racist Christian identity theology, and the other successor ideology on is actually what Latter Rain produces, because British Israelism was one of the key influences into the Latter Rain movement. You know, that's how we got Serpent Seed in the message. That's how we got Malachi 4, 5, and 6 interpretation. That's how we got a lot of our end-time teachings. That's where positive confession come from. It's where a lot of the restoration thoughts come from, you know, and so... Christian identity theology is splitting from British Israelism at the same time that the latter reign is splitting out of British Israelism, too. So there's a, there's, that's why there's so much overlap in our ideologies, uh, in the message and to Christian identity theology. Right. There's just so many things to talk about here. Let's pause for a minute. Let's go back to the American history side of things. Um, so the premise of my the book I'm working on, um, which is answering the why for William Branham, it's the theme is weaponized religion, and that's something that I picked up on very early in studying William Branham's ministry. This was never a religious cult. From its inception, this was a political cult. I've mentioned this several times, and I discovered early that Roy Davis was weaponizing religion, and he was using it as a tool, as a weapon to enact the third wave of the Ku Klux Klan. What I did not realize until Winrod is that that weaponization of religion, specifically Pentecostalism, came long before Davis used it. Um, that is evident with the Great Sedition Trial. And here's where it gets interesting in history. So 1944, the Great Sedition Trial happens. And this is, this is a trial that's been going on for some time. They have... Um, you know, been trying to dig deeper, understand how many people were connected to this, try to identify their links back to Hitler, because the belief by the United States government was that Hitler had weaponized Pentecostalism and fundamentalist religion against the U.S. United States Armed Forces. That was the premise of this sedition trial. All of this explodes in 1944. William Branham mentions that he's almost arrested for this. So not only did it explode with the trial and, you know, the information leading up to the trial, 
everyone who was connected to this <clears throat> began to fear that they're going to be arrested too. And we're not talking small-time arrests. This is a sedition trial for the war. These men are going to be locked up for a very, very long time. So I have no doubt that William Branham was just trembling in fear during this. And it's worth pointing out, Roy Davis was already in jail. Uh, when this happened, he was actually in prison, you know, when uh, when the sedition trials arrested and rounded all these people up, put them in jail. Right. So all of this exploded. <clears throat> well, leading up to the trial, there are a few things that if you look at the history, it's just fascinating. It's it's truly unbelievable. It really is. I had never heard of the great sedition trial of 1944. Had these two things not happened everyone would have heard of the Great Sedition Trial of 1944. Because what happened was, there, the key witness, a key witness, I should say, mysteriously died. And his wife mentioned that there were several enemy forces out to kill him. And he was perfectly fine on, I think it was a Friday, and then suddenly and mysteriously died over the weekend. And... His wife truly believed that he was poisoned. The medical examiner who examined him would not write down the analysis of what happened that led to his death. So there's this weird fact. One of the key witnesses for the trial died. Shortly after this, the primary judge who's executing all of this, you know, putting together the information and, and bringing the case against them. And <clears throat> again, this is a huge national level trial. He dies of a heart attack and mysteriously <laughs> the entire trial is overturned as a mistrial because of those two deaths, which is unbelievable if you think about it. So everyone at that point who are in these white supremacy, racist, Nazi circles are suddenly free and clear and there is no sedition trial. They can't, it, since it's overturned as a mistrial, it's very difficult to even prosecute them again. And if you look back at the timeline, Charles, that is exactly when the UPCI started holding William Branham up on their totem pole in 1945. It's really interesting to me that how, you know, it seemed this really just confirms a lot of the things that we, we had kind of mentioned in some previous episodes, you know, where the American Bund, we know a lot of their stuff is happening in the L.A. area. All these people are rounded up, and it, it seems like there's a real concentration of these people in Los Angeles um, as a result of these trials, as a result of other investigations that happened. And we know Winrod had converted Swift. Swift moved out to L.A. Um, William Branham ends up going to L.A. I mean, 1947, I think, 46 or 47, is the first time William Branham's going out to L.A. and is is definitely having some level of connection with these people. Um, and then it just grows stronger as you come through the through the late 40s and into the early 50s. It's it just a stronger, stronger connection. And one thing that's really... It just interests me. William Branham ends up reconnecting to these same circles of people that Roy yeah. Davis was working with, right, in the 30s and the 20s. And so Roy Davis, he seems to um, 
be central to a lot of this as well. And as he goes to jail in 1939, right, um, when he gets out of jail, he goes back to L.A., right, and he reconnects with these same people. I think we can understand why he would go to L.A. when he got out of jail. This is where Amy Semple McPherson is. There's a lot of these people have migrated there and orbit around her church. Um, and, and then the same thing um, from the aspect of... Um, from the aspect of William Branham, when I think about William Branham, so in 1932, Roy Davis is still pastor in his church, right? He hasn't went to jail. William Branham is his elder assistant pastor in the church. Right. At that time, Roy Davis is working with all of these people still, right? He is connected in 1932 to Winrod. He is connected in 1932 to these figures. Um, Winrod is helping on the Upshaw campaign in 1932, um, Davis is working with Upshaw in those years. He's connected to Paul Rader in those years, right? It's very hard for me to imagine that William Branham, as his assistant pastor, elder at his headquarters church, has no level of awareness of what his pastor is up to. Can you? I, I <laughs> cannot no imagine that William Branham has no awareness of the people his path, the other preachers his pastor is working with. John, yeah, that, that's. I'm going to say that's impossible. It is impossible that an elder assistant pastor in a church does not know the other preachers that his pastor is working with. So when William Branham in later years pretends that he never knew all these people and it was happenstance that he reconnected to the, some of these same groups, I don't I it, it just don't quite fly to me that that makes sense. Um it's no. something somewhere he's he's Maybe through the 40s, they went underground a little bit. Maybe they've quieted down, but and through his reinventions of himself, has distanced himself from him. But as you're coming into the 50s, for sure, he is reconnecting to these same circles of people, right? And Wesley Swift is out of these circles of people as well. You know, there are two other big questions that I had that <laughs> Winrod answers the why. <clears throat> like you mentioned, Roy Davis. So let's picture this scenario, Charles. We're in Jeffersonville, Indiana, where this, and I'm painting this false picture. This is not what happened, but William Branham is in, he's completely thrilled by the notion of God. Let's pretend William Branham is that kind of person. And this minister comes and baptizes him and converts him to Pentecostalism brings him into the church and ordains him as a minister. And again, this fictional William Branham is thrilled by God. Then while they're holding a revival, <laughs> the feds come in and they arrest um, Davis, the guy who has just baptized him, off of the platform. <clears throat> and they say, that girl sitting in the audience, who is, what is she, 16 or she's either 16 or 17, this man has brought her across state lines for sex and he's here before you and he's holding this revival. And this man is a long time criminal. He has cases of fraud. He has cases of racketeering. He has cases of swindling, of theft, of bigamy, of living a dual life with multiple wives in multiple states. I mean, the laundry list is massive. And all of this was aired to the public. So here's, here's William Branham, this fictional character who is entertained by God, who sees this man who 
completely is the the polar opposite of a Christian minister, the polar opposite. And yet he stays with him. I have always, and I will, will forever always wonder uh, why that happened because all of, you know, those connections, but now enter Winrod into this picture. His whole premise was that the United States government, which would have included politicians, officials, policemen, federal agents, etc., had been invaded by communism and we can't trust them. So therefore, as Davis is being arrested off the platform, all he had to do was tell William Branham, these are the communists. These are controlled and manipulated by the Jews. You can't believe anything they say. They're going to say some very bad things about me. And if you look at Jeffersonville, that is exactly what happened. There were, he's in a trial for sex with an underage girl. And there were something like 60 women from his congregation who went and defended him for this trial of sex while he's living with the girl. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. So that's question number one that's answered. Question number two is actually more fascinating, Charles. I have always wondered... How on earth William Branham got connected to the Kardashian family? As it, you know, it's mentioned in my book, but the Kardashian family are the ones who sponsored William Branham. And Dima Shakarian, who would be Kim Kardashian's, what is he, great uncle or something like that, is the one who founded the Full Gospel Businessmen's Association, who also lifted William Branham up on a totem pole. Well, if you go back and you study the Kardashian family history, they were sponsoring the a severely despicable character named Clem Davies, who was a Klansman, who was a white supremacist, who was a British Israelite, who was deeply well connected to the same circles that Winrod was connected to. Yeah, so he, when he it, was in the Anglo-Saxon Federation, which Wesley mm-hmm. Swift had was part of as well you know and gordon Lindsay was in that group as well yeah so there there are so many connections that so many doors that this one simple figure opens for us and i'll be honest charles i'm i'm looking at this mental room full of all of these doors we've only opened like five of the hundreds that this now opens for us yeah you know there's there's so there's so much here, and you know I still have lots of questions myself. But I I think there's enough here that a person can start to draw a few conclusions. You know when you when you look at William Branham back in the 30s, William Branham, as you know, as we went through in those episodes, William Branham watched Roy Davis be arrested off the platform in front of him and hauled off to jail, and William Branham knew that Roy Davis ended up convicted and went to prison. Okay. And then, after a few years later, Roy Davis is out of prison, William Branham is bragging Roy Davis up in his sermons. He's talking all good about Roy Davis, about how much he loved Roy Davis, about how great Roy Davis was. He's name-dropping him as when he's the Imperial Wizard of the Klan. You know, he's... And when Roy Davis sends Upshaw to his meetings to be healed, which, again, we know is a, really is a scam healing. Upshaw could already walk before he got there. You know, William Branham is is enjoying all of these things that Roy Davis is doing for him, right? Roy Davis basically sent William Branham a free miracle, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and so these things are happening 
you know, and, and, and all of that stuff, too, by the way, is happening in L.A., right? It's when it, William Branham is in L.A. at the center of this stuff in the, in the late 40s, early 50s. And how can you, how can, uh, uh, this is just a very simple thing. How can a person who is a Christian preacher endorse another preacher who he knows has been arrested and went to jail for all of these sex crimes and grand theft and everything, right? Something is very, very wrong there. William Branham knew who Roy Davis was, and he is openly endorsing him into the 50s, right? And not only is he openly endorsing the imperial wizard of the clan in the 50s and into the 60s, he is also sharing and promoting the same ideology and elements of the same ideology that are evolving into Christian identity theology. Um, the same stuff that these guys were pioneering in the 20s and the 30s and into the 40s, William Branham is taking elements of it that he's learned from them, and he's preaching it in his sermons. And as you come into the closer to the 60s, John, as the, me as the message is is developing, he's telling us that some of these doctrines that he learned from these very evil people are divine revelations from God that we need to accept as the last day mysteries, right? William Branham did that, and that is so utterly deceptive, so utterly wrong, so it, it, it is absolutely outrageous that he did that to us, John. And yeah. to me, what matters in all of this, and the thing that's interested me the most in everything that I have looked at is, where did William Branham learn these things he told us he got from God? Where did this ideology come from? And if you are in the message today, I don't care what sect you are in, if you believe in serpent seed, you believe in an ideology William Branham learned from these people. I, I, don't, I don't care what you say. I don't care what any of them say. They don't know what they're talking about. William Branham learned serpent seed from these people. And when he preached it in his original forms, it was racial. It was very racial. And some places implement it in the same way. Some places do it in a more light way. There's so much in the message, and that's not the only thing he got from them that he taught. Uh, but that's, that's one of the most destructive. Yeah. So, Charles, let's take it back to the history, which fascinates me. And I think this one will just blow the minds of the listeners. So, in the 1920s, you've got the Indiana clan, which almost took over the White House. They were rising up against... Um, you know, the Catholic Church, they had, the Klan had put proxies into the Indianapolis government. It was all being orchestrated from the Cato Tabernacle, where all of this, you know, all of these connections to William Branham happened. <clears throat> and they almost took over the United States government. The Klan tried it again in the 20s. They tried to take over the government. And um, it led to one of the biggest catastrophes of the Democratic National Convention whenever they attempted this. Upshaw was, um, he wasn't officially named, but he was parading himself that he would be the vice president on the ticket. Well, then later Upshaw himself tries to take over the White House for the Klan, and he runs under the prohibitionist ticket, and we've got Winrod who's connected to this. Well, what happened is whenever the Klan started really trying, um, as they're building up to the third wave of the Ku Klux Klan, and I'm not going to tell 
everything here because I'm, I want to fully address it in the book that I'm writing. But one of the biggest facts that just blew my mind, the Klan tried this again in the 50s and 60s. They formed what is called the National States Rights Party. And this party was an attempt to basically sway the entire nation back to the fundamentals, basically, of, of Winrod. And that organization, when it was created, was headquartered in Jeffersonville, Indiana. And throughout its inception and its, you know, it moved, headquarters moved often so that they couldn't be caught by the feds, etc. And each time they moved, the P.O. box remained in Jeffersonville, Indiana. When 1960, Gerald Winrod's son, Gordon, was named national chaplain of the National States Rights Party. And if you examine the history of National States Rights Party, their ideologies was basically the fun, the foundation for that ideology was laid by Winrod. So we've got this full, full circle back to Winrod. And you mentioned Los Angeles. All of this, the epicenter for that movement happened in California. You've got Davis and Upshaw who were going underground, creating this, this orphanage. Um, at the same time, the Sharon orphanage is being created. You've got these two orphanages who are, uh, Upshaw was the head of the Department of Americanism, which is basically saying this is a <laughs> this is an orphanage that is going to begin indoctrinating children. That's that's exactly what it was, an affront for the Klan. During that same time, you've got Wesley Swift, who's connected to Winrod, who's assisting in creating the rebirth of the almost defunct California Klan. So Los Angeles literally was the epicenter, and Winrod is going to come full circle when he joins the National States Rights Party. That National States Rights Party, which was headquartered in Jeffersonville, John, uh, was deeply connected to Wesley Swift. He was actually the main sponsor who had got the thing going, and one of his uh, key lieutenants, someone named Orrin Petito, was the leader in that National Rights Party. Um, so again, <laughs> direct connections to the Christian identity movement with that stuff, direct connections back to the L.A. people, right? Um, Winrod's in it, who had worked with Roy Davis, who had lived in Jeffersonville, William Brent. So there's no doubt someone affiliated with Roy Davis, probably somebody who William Branham knew, if not if not them themselves, right, mm. were, were running that thing out of Jeffersonville, right? I mean, it, yeah. who, who knows? It could have been... It could have been, I mean, it almost certainly was some sort of former clan figures or clan figures in Jeffersonville um, connected to Roy Davis, who William Brown was connected to Roy Davis, who was behind a lot of that stuff. So it's it's difficult. There's a whole, there's still lots of things that you can only just kind of speculate at a little bit. But, but, but the things are there, the, the, the dots are there, and there's very clear ways in which they connect, but exactly what it means is is still vague to me you know that that's still it's still vague to me just what everyone's role in this thing was right they were connected obviously they were working together obviously they shared an ideology obviously but just what exactly everyone's role was in this thing you know is still not it's it's not perfectly clear right because you know we don't there's not like secret meeting notes that we can look at <laughs> and but clearly they share an ideology and they are each in their own way working towards some kind of a common 
a common goal, you know. Yeah. Obviously, that's what's happening with all of these people. Um, and just, just how they're doing that, just exactly how it's all being orchestrated, or if, if it's just coincidental, they all share the ideology and they're all gladly contributing their piece and happy to work with whatever ally will do whatever, whatever. You know, it's not exactly clear. But definitely, they are working together towards some sort of common goal. Yeah. We definitely will never have all the answers <clears throat> as to the fine details of how these intricate pieces worked. And <clears throat> if you look at what happened in the 50s and 60s, Roy Davis is only one small part. There were many, many different cogs in this massive, very complicated mess that was created in the United States. But what we can say is we now know the why. We know what they were trying to achieve. And we've got the literature from both Winrod and Swift. This was leading up to what they were basically describing as the coming race wars. And it was, according to Winrod's early writings, the, the race wars were being caused by the Jews who were manipulating the government, and they would send the mongrels, which was his word for blacks, to come in, and there would be this massive showdown between the forces of good and the forces of evil. And this is, you know, if you go back and you study what happened during President Kennedy's era, and, you know, some of the things that went on, these, these men were weaponizing religion to fight against the black communities. And they were doing this through Winrod, Winrod's ideology. They were basically taking his end-of-days scenarios that he painted the picture for in the 30s. They had brought it, you know, took the dust off of them, polished them up, changed them a bit, and they weaponized it against the United States. Yeah, you know, when we, when we do our episode on the 1933 prophecies, we'll, we can have some fun exploring um, how those uh, beliefs were brought into the message and how some of the sects like my sect looked at those things john but yeah you know the you know the message taught and believed in the imminent destruction of the united states right i mean that was a prophecy a well-known prophecy of william branham that we were expecting the imminent destruction of the united states and <clears throat> we 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 were expecting that somehow we're gonna have to survive it too because i mean in my sect of the message john i think we chatted earlier your sect too uh, we we thought that somehow this stuff was going to happen before the rapture and somehow we were going to have to survive through this coming american apocalypse you know before before we could go to heaven so yeah we we had which again that is a those are concepts that developed from christian identity theology actually that's where that stuff comes from because um, it's not in the Bible, and I know people hate that, but it's not in the Bible, you know, it's it, that's from Bible. Christian identity theology, right? I mean, look in the Bible, I mean, it's not in, okay, so, I usually, I don't say too much theological or, or biblical related stuff, but I'll say it there, that's not in the Bible, I mean, come on, give me a break. So, uh, in my sect of the message, we, you know, we admitted it wasn't even the Bible, we, we use what we call George Washington's vision as our basis for it, because it's not in the Bible, right, so... Anyway, but it, this stuff came out of Christian identity theology. My goodness, John. <clears throat> I'll go so far as to say, Charles, this was anti-biblical. <laughs> not just was it not in the Bible. This was fully against the Bible. Yeah. Um, you. It, it, it's <laughs> an end-of-days race war is not in the Bible. 
So I, I just want to make sure, John, again, you know, that I give this disclaimer as we close. You know, you know, we're not saying Angelus Temple or the Foursquare Churches or any of these people are necessarily like this today, right? I mean, Christian identity, yeah, they're still like this today. Run away. <laughs> and the message is they're still believing the stuff we're talking about, right? But um, in some of the sects. But I don't know so much about all these other places. We're primarily talking about stuff that happened 75, 100 years ago, and most all of these people are dead. Winrod's dead. Wesley Swift's dead. All these people are dead, so I just want to say, as far as I know, the Angelus Temple and the Foursquare Churches, they ended up rejecting this stuff more or less in the 1950s and by coming into the 60s, so that that's my understanding, but William Brown was right there alongside of it, Amy Semple McPherson was right there alongside of it, you know, and this stuff happened, and L.A. and the Angelus Temple was an important hub for this stuff. In the 20s, in yeah. the 30s, in the 40s, and into the early 50s. Yeah. Well, Charles, this has been a roller coaster of an episode, and <laughs> we've we've only skimmed the surface. We've not even gone deep with this yet. Um, I think we're going to have to follow up with a few episodes to kind of expand on what we've talked about here. But um, like you, I'm going to leave a disclaimer, too. If you're in the message and you're studying these things and you're listening to our podcast. There were always questions for me, even when I was in the message of how to make things fit. There were things that William Branham said that simply did not go with other things. William Branham said, some of which are very significant. They're very problematic because the things I'm talking about, William Branham claimed that it was not him saying them. It was God speaking through him to say them. So then we have God saying one thing and God saying the polar opposite thing. And that becomes very problematic. But now that we enter Winrod into this picture, Charles, we have, you know, there's ample information for people to study Winrod. We know the code words he was using. When he talks about communism or communists, he's talking about Jews. When he's talking about Rome, he's talking about the Roman Catholic Church, which is joined together with the Jews who are the serpent seed to form this union of Antichrist. When he talks about mongrels and coloreds, he's talking about the minions for this group that are basically the foot soldiers that are going to come in and are going to basically create the race war. So you've got the communism who's coming in through the leadership in the United States. You've got the mongrels who are coming in as the foot soldiers and the clan was rising up in opposition. If you're in the message and you have those same questions, but I've talked to many people even who are still in the message who understand that this is problematic. Go back and reread everything William Branham said using those keywords, those code words that Winrod and Branham were using. When he talks about the heathens, he's mentioning this and he's talking about basically Winrod's mongrels. So replace heathens with black people, replace mongrel with black people, replace communism with Jews, and go back and read these and see what happens. It will absolutely blow your mind. This was... This was insidious, what was happening here. But anyway, Charles, we've got to wrap this up, and we're going to expand on this a bit more. And I'm, I just have to say this has been one of the most fascinating studies that I've done probably in 
the decade that I've been researching all of this, this has been the most astounding, fascinating, and horrific things <laughs> that I've ever began to study. So if you've enjoyed our show and you want more information, you can check us out on the web. You can find us at william-branham.org and christiangospelchurch.org. For an overview of the historical research of William Branham and the healing revivals, read Preacher Behind the White Hoods, a critical examination of William Branham and his message, available on Amazon, Kindle, and Audible. Join us again next week. We've got a great episode coming.